Welcome to Insights with Sights, the Symphony of Scripture, a weekly podcast exploring the themes and contours of the weekly scripture readings. For more information about the podcast or to download the companion notes, please visit slash podcast We now join our host, the Reverend Dr. Christopher Seitz. For the Pentecost readings for track one over the last weeks, we have been supplied with four key episodes from the first 17 chapters of for Samuel. The call of Samuel, the request of the people for a king, the selection and anointing of David, and the conflict, David and Goliath. And today we cross over the entire remaining chapters of 1 Samuel, 14 all told, to the account of the death of Saul and Jonathan and David's poignant elegy over them in the opening chapter of 2 Samuel. One of the main challenges in the narration of this latter half of 1 Samuel is the overshadowing fact that Saul remains king, even as David has been anointed by Samuel as his replacement. Saul is not an old man. How will this play out? For David is successful, winsome, best friends with his son, and indeed in a position to replace him. What these 14 chapters convey is the extreme patience and care David exercises toward the anointed Saul, to the degree that in saner moments, Saul will refer to him as his own son, my son, David, and successor instead of Jonathan, David's close comrade, and Saul's real son, and the apparent successor. This makes for a difficult, indeed, almost impossible quandary. Saul remains king, and David not only defers to that, but believes himself divinely constrained to do so. And he is faithful to that divine constraint to the point of risking his own life and needing several times to take cover in difficult circumstances, encountering threats in consequence, negotiating with difficulty his friendship with Jonathan while evading the attacks from an increasingly demented Saul, a Saul who, toward the end of his life, even conjures up Samuel from the dead this being one of the more painful episodes in his decline. One could ask why 14 chapters and not just a simple summary. Perhaps at one level the answer is such is life. There is no early retirement home 
for rejected but functioning kings. The dilemma is equally David's, and so we cover all this difficult terrain in the second half of 1 Samuel, in part, I believe, to make sure we sense something of the balance in David's long-term time on the stage. To recall and place in the record these moments of difficulty and challenge for anyone, much less the one who God has personally and prospectively and providentially placed on that stage. This was important for the narrator. David, the warrior and success at all things, is also David, the patient and deferential. We come to today. Saul and Jonathan die in battle, as the final chapter of 1 Samuel relates it, along with Saul's other two sons at the hands of the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. Saul does not die outright, but is gravely wounded by an archer's successful arrow shot. His request for his armor-bearer to finish him off is refused, and so Saul dies at his own hand rather than be made sport of by the victors. And yet that fate is still in store for him anyway, as we read on. And in the end, the men of Jabesh-Gilead must rescue the bodies such as they are and give them burial and proper mourning. And so David's moving tribute today which comes after a man's report to him that all of this has transpired. And more than this, he claims to have finished Saul off. This is one of those places where sources have been posited to account for the divergence. Yet equally, it creates a scene in contrast to all David has himself endured and borne and through which he has faithfully stayed his hand. Instead, we have an opportunist eager to lie to gain favor, not realizing he has done precisely what David consistently refused to do, and with far more reason to have done so. The elegy speaks for itself in its emotion, given all this. The full 14-chapter journey of David vis-a-vis Saul and his family over rough terrain for them all here tragically has come to an end. Verse 21's reference to not anointed with oil is unlikely an effort to claim Saul was never truly king, but rather refers to his shield so too the implication of Hebrew poetry where A and B lines repeat and reinforce one another. And this is the point of all that has ensued since the day of his anointing, the painful cry for a king and the painful burden placed upon him 
for whom it was so, and his own son, and indeed David himself, a fitting elegy indeed. When we last left Jesus in our gospel readings, he was crossing to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in a boat in a storm to the predominantly Gentile side, the Greek Decapolis. And this Sunday, he is returning back, back to the side where he had previously been met by such opposition from the Jewish officials. So he didn't arrive, touch the shore, and return immediately, however, for in the selections in our gospel readings, we're passing over the scene of the healing of the Gerizim demoniac, after which Mark says he published widely abroad throughout the Decapolis the great things Jesus had done for him, and all were amazed. This time, upon returning, the reception on the Jewish side of the sea is favorable. One of the leaders of the synagogue, whose name, Jairus, Mark supplies, falls at Jesus' feet and begs him, come and heal his sick and, as we will see, dying daughter. This is the first of a series of healings Mark records, healings on behalf of those who cannot ask for themselves, and so means Jesus must cross over to meet them on their other side. Sick and dying, she is unclean, and so off Jesus goes with Jairus and a crowd following. In route, however, we have an unexpected urgency of its own. A woman with a chronic flow of blood, which makes her ritually unclean as well, who has dumped a savings on false physicians over the years, boy, that sounds realistic, summons up the courage to touch the healer as he passes through a crowd en route. And the touch, that will do it. Just as Jairus has requested for his daughter, she senses in her familiar flesh of distress and chronic isolation an instant electrifying healing. And Jesus senses it as well. Mark's Jesus is here as always authoritative and virtually clairvoyant, looking for the woman. For he demands a personal exchange for a personal crossing over to his side by this poor woman trapped in disease and chronic spiral. In fear and trembling, like the disciples in the boat. She responds to his demand and like Jairus falls at his feet. He crosses over. 
Your faith is a solid compass, and it brought you home to me. Be at peace. This was not a one-time fluke. Your scourge is gone. Now, this delay along the way, while doubtless encouraging Jairus in what he has witnessed, like in the story of Lazarus, has meant the passing of precious time, however, Upon arrival, flowing from his house is the bad news. Death got here first. Jesus turns immediately to Jairus and says, Keep believing. He takes the big three with him, Peter, James, and John, entering the house where the professional mourners are well underway. Jesus sends them packing, and this leaves him alone with the four who are now joined by the distraught mother of the young girl. Her sleep is no more final, he says, than was the deeper sleep of Lazarus, even as it is death, just the same. He takes her little hand in his own. Arise, she does, and like a good mother, Jesus moves things back into the daily rounds. Get her something to eat. Amazement ensues, and it will continue. Mark is introducing a man unlike any man, an unstoppable force of healing, life from death, release from demons, power over waves and seas of doubt. The three are there to bear testimony and what they do there in their amazement, they will later do with bold speech. After the forgiving, Jesus reroutes them by his risen presence. But not before and until his final assault on death, his own death is done. Here is the key to the call for secrecy, of course, his hour is not yet come, but come it will. Our accompanying poetic texts allow us a choice between Lamentations, which captures the plight of the woman with the flow of blood, or Psalm 30, which speaks of life from death. Lamentations 3 is the central of five panels of lament, confession, and a sitting down inside sin and loss. It is the first person poem of Lamentations, spoken by daughter Zion, by every man, by Israel. All can claim this speech. And Jesus enters it and does not erase it, but forgives and new creates out of it. It's possible even to imagine Jairus telling his daughter how remarkable was that day she came back to life and later as a young woman hearing Psalm 30 summarize her plight and its life-giving reversal. As for our Old Testament text, which comes from the wisdom of Solomon, 
There's very little internal Old Testament commentary on the story of Adam and Eve, surprisingly. The wisdom of Solomon's opening chapter offers the first such reflection, and it matches nicely both the healing of the woman afflicted and the young child brought back to life. Death is foreign to God's good purposes. It came as an alien intrusion. All generative forces made by God are wholesome. And Jesus in Mark's gospel has come to defeat the devil who out of envy sought to distort and kill, to scourge with disease and condemn. The woman with the flow of blood touches this time the tree of life and the knowledge of good and evil, and in that act, by that act, Satan's destructive ploy is brought to an end. Envious not for knowledge, but for life and health, her act is acknowledged by Jesus to be the end of Satan's rule over her. We hope you enjoyed Insights with Sights, the symphony of scripture. For archived episodes and notes, please visit www.wickliffcollege.ca podcast. Thank you, and we hope you tune in again. This podcast is a ministry of Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto.